Good afternoon, everybody. This is the Tuesday after the Sunday that we had to cancel church on my behalf, unfortunately. Um, I am still ill with a virus that um, is not COVID, thank God, and is not um, even the flu, but it is similar to, but worse than the flu in my experience. Um, thank you for your prayers. Your ongoing prayers are appreciated. I thought that I was going to try to roll in last Sunday's sermon with this coming Sunday's sermon, um, but both aspects of the atonement are so important that we were going to talk about those two days. And um, it's also Palm Sunday next Sunday, so I thought that might be trying to accomplish too much at once. Um, but I didn't want to leave this one out. So I'm sharing it here. I understand that a lot of you take the time on Sunday to, to come to church, even if you're online and not in person. And so you may not have time to listen to this one for a while, but I encourage you to, because I think it will help um, increase all of our understanding of the atonement even more. Um, I'm not going to try to recreate an entire service this afternoon, um, but I do need to read the scripture passage for this sermon, and I'm going to, um, I'm going to do that now. It is Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons who died after they entered the Lord's presence and burned the wrong kind of offering fire before him. The Lord said to Moses, warn your brother Aaron not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain whenever he chooses. If he does, he will die. For the ark's cover, the place of atonement is there, and I myself am present in the cloud above the atonement cover. When Aaron enters the sanctuary area, he must follow these instructions fully. He must bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He must put on his linen tunic and the linen undergarments worn next to his body. He must tie the linen sash around his waist and put the linen turban on his head. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself in water before he puts them on. Aaron must take from the community of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron will present his own bull as a sin offering to purify himself and his family, making them right with the Lord. Then he must take the two male goats and present them to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. He is to cast sacred lots to determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to the Lord and which one will carry the sins of the people to the wilderness of Azazel. Aaron will then present as a sin offering the goat chosen by lot for the Lord. The other goat, the scapegoat chosen by lot to be sent away, will be kept alive, standing before the Lord. When it is sent away to Azazel in the wilderness, the people will be purified and made right with the Lord. Aaron will present his own bull as a sin offering to purify himself and his family, making them right with the Lord. After he has slaughtered the bull as a sin offering, he will fill an incense burner with the burning coals from the altar that stands before the Lord. Then he will take two handfuls of fragrant powdered incense and will carry the burner and the incense behind the inner curtain. There in the Lord's presence, he will put the incense on the burning coals so that a cloud of incense will rise over the ark's cover, the place of atonement that rests on the ark of the covenant. If he follows these instructions, he will not die. Then he must take some of the blood of the bull 
dip his finger in it and sprinkle it on the east side of the atonement cover. He must sprinkle blood seven times with his finger in front of the atonement cover. Then Aaron must slaughter the first goat as a sin offering for the people and carry its blood behind the inner curtain. There he will sprinkle the goat's blood over the atonement cover and in front of it, just as he did with the bull's blood. Through this process, he will purify the most holy place, and he will do the same for the entire tabernacle because of the defiling sin and rebellion of, this, of the Israelites. No one else is allowed inside the tabernacle when Aaron enters it for the purification ceremony in the most holy place. No one may enter until he comes out again after purifying himself, his family, and all the congregation of Israel, making them right with the Lord. Then Aaron will come out to purify the altar that stands before the Lord. He will do this by taking some of the blood from the bull and the goat and putting it on each of the horns of the altar. Then he must sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times over the altar. In this way, he will cleanse it from Israel's defilement and make it holy. When Aaron has finished purifying the most holy place of the tabernacle and the altar, he must present the live goat. He will lay both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and sins of the people of Israel. In this way, he will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. Then a man spe specially chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. As the goat goes into the wilderness, it will carry all the people's sins upon itself into a desolate land. When Aaron goes back into the tabernacle, he must take off the linen garments he was wearing when he entered the most holy place, and he must leave the garments there. Then he must bathe himself with water in a sacred place, put on his regular garments, and go out to sacrifice a burnt offering for himself and a burnt offering for the people. Through this process, he will purify himself and the people, making them right with the Lord. He must then burn all the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man chosen to drive the scapegoat into the wilderness of Azazel must wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. Then he may return to the camp. The bull and the goat presented as sin offerings whose blood Aaron takes into the most holy place for the purification ceremony will be carried outside the camp. The animal's hides, internal organs, and dung are all to be burned. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself in water before returning to the camp. On the 10th day of the appointed month in early autumn, you must deny yourselves. Neither native-born Israelites nor foreigners living among you may do any kind of work. This is a permanent law for you. On that day, offerings of purification will be made for you, and you will be purified in the Lord's presence from all your sins. It will be a Sabbath day of complete rest for you, and you must deny yourselves. This is a permanent law for you. In future generations, the purification ceremony will be performed by the priest who has been anointed and ordained to serve as high priest in place of his ancestor, Aaron. He will put on the holy linen garments and purify the most holy place, the tabernacle, the altar, the priests, and the entire congregation. This is a permanent law for you, to purify the people of Israel from their sins, making them right with the Lord once each year. Moses followed all of these instructions exactly as the Lord had commanded him. Let's pray. Lord, that's a lot. And just listening to that passage alone can feel really overwhelming. Having to do it must be even more overwhelming. Thank you for your grace 
and for what Jesus has accomplished for us. And please help me to speak clearly and explain what you have shown about how Jesus purifies us. In his name, amen. So um, happy Paniversary. It's really the anniversary of the coronavirus pandemic. And um, it's kind of ironic that we were all stuck at home because I was sick, not from the coronavirus, but from a virus, on the anniversary of the beginning of quarantine, um, when the first Sunday that we had to shut down and do church from home, um, which unfortunately I wasn't even capable of doing on Sunday. And it's weird that it was this Sunday that that happened because this is actually um, a sermon more or less about sin as a type of illness, a type of contagion. Do you guys remember at the beginning of the pandemic, all of the conflicting information and the all the things that people said you had to do to keep things clean? The, the, I found at the beginning of that, um, there was a, a 16 minute video on how to clean your groceries when you go to the store. And I actually did that one time after Paul had gone to Costco to shop. So these were not small groceries and it was not a small amount of groceries. It was really overwhelming and sort of stressful and time consuming. Over the course of this year, the rules and restrictions and, recommend and recommendations have changed and then changed back and then loosened up again. And hopefully we're on a, an incline of continual loosening up. Um, but the fact is, one way or another, we are all way more aware of hygiene than we used to be. Probably even some of us who were germaphobes to begin with. Now, maybe now it's worse. I hope not, but um, we are all really aware of this issue. So we could say that Leviticus is an entire book of spiritual sanitation instructions, which is probably partly why people don't like it very much because it's very um, how to in a most of the time, not super fun way, kind of like the grocery washing video. If this book is anything to go by, it is a lot of work to clean yourself up spiritually. If this day that we read about in chapter 16 is anything to go by, it's a lot of work. So many steps. This chapter is about the Day of Atonement, or as today's Jews call it, Yom Kippur. That's probably what they called it back then too. I don't know Hebrew. Um, it is still celebrated, but there are no more sacrifices, so obviously not in this detailed, drawn-out way that God gave Moses to give to Aaron. Um, but they, but it's still a celebrated holiday. It still involves fasting among the community. It's still about atonement and spiritual cleansing. Just in this chapter, we saw instructions about the priest has to put on a special outfit. He has to slaughter some animals. There's blood, there's fire, there's smoke. Take off the special outfit. Wash yourself, put on your regular clothes. Also, the scapegoat usher has to do that. Also, the guy burning the animals. Also, everybody has to fast, deny themselves, not do any work. All of this is just on one day. And there were lots of offerings for the people of Israel all year long. This isn't the only day. There are lots of ways also 
to talk about the effects of sin. And there are lots of ways, as we're discovering, to talk about what Jesus has accomplished for us in his life and death and resurrection. There are many ways. There's no one one that encapsulates them all. There are many ways that sin controls our lives. And Jesus has piece by piece rescued us from all of them. And we're seeing this in all of these different Old Testament stories. Jesus, we've already seen Jesus fulfilled the terms of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Jesus ransomed us from the false gods. Jesus cleaned house. Jesus freed us from slavery. Jesus purifies us from the contagion of sin. That's today's. Sin is not only um, part inflicted on us by false gods, not only a consequence and a, ca a cause of our slavery to it from our society, it's also a contamination or like a virus. It's in our environment now. It is everywhere. I don't know if you guys saw those memes online for a while. It said, if you could see it, would you, would you be more careful? And there were these giant um, COVID germs floating around in the picture. Sin is actually like that. And sometimes we can see it because it comes out. But even when we don't, it's in our environment. It can kill you and it restricts access to loved ones. A virus does that and sin does that. Sin is the reason there's death in the world and sin exiles us from God. Today's atonement understanding is so far the closest thing we're seeing to the idea of what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. <laughs> We're going to talk about that one more next week on Palm Sunday, but we need to touch on it here because that idea of the atonement often gets mixed up in this idea of the purification from these sacrifices, and they really aren't the same thing. They don't rule each other out, but they're not the same thing. And it's important, I think, to, to pick them apart a little bit. Penal substitutionary atonement in English means Jesus took the punishment for our sins. That's the one we're most uh, familiar with probably here at Central Baptist Church. And the key word in it, though, is punishment. Jesus took the punishment for our sins. Okay, just briefly before next week, does God get angry at sin? Yeah, other, other places in the Bible say that he does. And even this one talks about sin, wickedness, injustice. Even this chapter talks about those things. But it's not, this chapter is not talking about punishment, even though it's acknowledging that sin is wicked and evil and destructive and all of those things. We often assume, because it involves killing animals, that the sacrifices in Leviticus are about punishment. They're not. They are about purifying us from something that is so contagious and contaminating that it can kill us and our community if it isn't decisively removed. No matter how you frame it, sin 
and release from sin requires the sacrifice of a life. We've already seen that all the way through this, but none of our other um, pictures of the atonement have been about punishment either, but they all require a life. This is why God tells his people, the life is in the blood and blood in the old Testament is seen as a cleansing agent, even though that seems weird to us because according to our standards of hygiene and what we know from science, all bodily fluids and particularly blood can be dangerous contaminants themselves. Back then, I mean, God knew the science, he made the science, but um, surely there were not as many actual diseases <laughs> to go around back then. And this blood image, everybody understood that if you bled out, you were gonna die and it's powerful and it's earthy and it's something that all mammals have to deal with and god found it an appropriate very powerful and effective um, image to express just how serious sin was and also to use it as a cleansing agent let's be clear other nations around the time of the israelites in the desert they had sacrificial systems too, and they were about appeasing angry gods or feeding needy gods. Um, we talked in Morning Quiet, not today, but last week, about Psalm 50. And in that Psalm, the writer, who I think was Asaph, says, has God say, you guys don't need to feed me. I don't really need your sacrifices. I want an offering of thanksgiving. God didn't actually need these sacrifices. He needed the people's hearts uncontaminated, but people were gonna sin. And so that's why these sacrifices were instituted. The killing of bulls and goats in our chapter and the bulls and the lambs and the birds and other ones is kind of like a callback to the covenant cutting that we looked at at the beginning of this series with God and Abraham. These are the people God has set apart through whom to bless the world. And so they need to be contaminant free. If the whole world is an environment of sin, God's and God's people are going to bless it. They can't be contaminated. They have to be pure, but they're going to keep sinning. And so they have to keep being purified. This is what the day of atonement is for. And this is what many of the other sacrifices are for. But actually, we need to keep in mind, there were actually five different types of sacrifice outlined in Leviticus. Not all of them are for sin. And for only one of them, the fellowship offering or the peace offering, does anybody actually get to eat the meat? Only one. This is a super expensive system, you guys, especially because not only are these animals living beings also created by God, but they are people's livelihood. Some sacrifice, some sacrifices, you, because they didn't have to do with sin, you would have to offer them anyway. But the fact that two of the five kinds are specifically sin-related and neither of those do you get to eat, this means that in order to do it right, in order to properly purify your family or the community as happens in this chapter, 
you would in effect be lighting a match to hundreds, if not thousands of dollars every time you had to offer a sin related offering, just the sin related offering. Therefore, we can conclude that sin is costly, deadly, and isolating. How much does like COVID does that sound? There are layers of atonement as we're seeing, but when you are trying to purify your life from something destructive, you have to take drastic measures to remove it from your life and keep it out of your life. Several of us know something about this in different areas, especially when it comes to addictions. We know that if we wanna be free from an addiction, we can't expect it to go away on its own. We have to do something decisive to get rid of it and to keep away from it. The Day of Atonement described in our chapter today was, and still is, a yearly day of cleansing for the entire people. And it had to start with the priest and his family. I'm including this detail because it might seem a little obvious, but I think this might explain some of the problems that we have in our churches today. And I want to be conscious of not falling into, which is putting leaders up on pedestals and not holding them accountable for sins that have been committed. And first, because how can the people be pure if the leader and his family are not? So the context for this is, the beginning of this chapter, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. So the weird thing is that this story that's referring to is actually happens six chapters earlier. In chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, it says, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. We don't really know what was particularly wrong with their offering, any more than we know what was wrong with Cain's in Genesis 4. But we do have one clue. In the aftermath of this, in verse 9 of that same chapter, chapter 10, God says to Aaron, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting, or you will die. So God's not saying don't drink alcohol, so you have a problem with it, but have some respect. Don't drink it when you're going to go lead a worship service. Take seriously who you're waiting on. Keep your wits about you. After this story in chapter 10, there are a whole bunch of chapters with all kinds of rules about things like boils and rashes and mold in your house. And it feels kind of weird and disjointed, but it's really not. And we see that it's not because chapter 16 links back to this story after the death of the two sons of Aaron's. The boils and the rashes and the mold and all of that stuff, the skin diseases and all kinds of other lovely things, in the previous chapters also have to be destroyed to keep from contaminating the people, physically, literally, and now God circles back to Aaron's family's tragedy as a tragedy, but also a sin. 
Nadab and Abihu were killed because in some way they were contaminating the holy place. So God is saying, look, these guys contaminated my space. It is unclean. I had to do something drastic to get that out of here. Now, with all these other things that contaminate your space, this is how you need to deal with it. And hopefully you can just remove a piece and everything will be fine. Like you might take a piece of moldy bread out of the bag of bread. So the rest of the loaf is okay. But that doesn't always work out. Then you just destroy the whole thing. Burn your house down if you have to. Purification has to start at the top. In this case with the high priest. In order to avoid spreading it to everyone else. Aaron and his family must. And all pastors and preachers should acknowledge our own and our family's sin and deal with it before attempting to deal with the peoples. The Day of Atonement was for the priest and his family, but it was also for the whole community of Israel. In the NIV Study Bible, Richard E. Averbeck summarizes the day like this. He says, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was the capstone of the tabernacle sacrificial procedures for the year. It was the annual day of purification for the whole tabernacle, including even the most holy place. We usually think that Passover was the main one. This is the, Passover maybe was the cornerstone. Passover is foundational to all of this system, but Yom Kippur is the pinnacle. It's the climax to which all of these sacrifices are leading. It provided a complete ceremonial cleansing for the whole community of Israel and for the tabernacle for the coming year. It included both sin offerings and burnt offerings. There was a sin offering for the high priest and his household and two sin offerings for the people, the slaughtered sin offering and the scapegoat sin offering. There was also a burnt offering for the high priest and his household, as well as one for the whole community. So the sin offering. The sin offering was offered for the sins of the whole nation. The accidental sins, the unconscious sins, and presumably, although it's a little hard to tell this from other parts of Leviticus, the sins from which the community or the family had become aware and had repented. There is no sacrifice anywhere for intentional, ongoing rebellion. I don't believe this means that Jesus only died for the people who were predestined to be saved, whatever that means. That's not today's discussion. There is very little scripture to support that Jesus only died for certain people. There is a lot in scripture to support that God loves and wants to be in fellowship with every human being he has ever made. And yet, the sacrifice made to purify cannot purify if the person continues to cling to their contamination. Say that I decided not to go to the ER yesterday to get some help with this virus that I'm fighting. I just said, I'm going to tough it out. I'm going to, I, I'm going to beat this thing myself. I don't need any help. I literally could have died. (laughs) Um, And I sure would have been irresponsible if I had brought any of you in contact with it. God longs for our hearts, but if he tried to force an unrepentant person to connect with him, to reconcile with him, not only would that person remain unsatisfied, God is perfectly good, but an unrepentant person doesn't want God, and so will never be satisfied by God. 
and their lack of repentance indicates a desire not to be reconciled. The forced reconciliation would not be loving to any of us who have repented and turned to God in faith because contamination is not just an individual problem. It spreads. That's why it's a contaminant. It's contagious. If God forced people to repent and come to him and be reconciled with him, their contagion would spread and we'd be right back where we started again. I'm pretty sure Jesus doesn't want to go through this again. Usually, back to the sin offering, usually the sin offering was slaughtered. The wages of sin is death. So any other time in the year when there's a sin offering mentioned, it's about it, it's an animal that gets killed. But in this one day of the year, there's also a scapegoat sin offering. Because the wages of sin is also exile, separation from God and from God's community. So this is the other reason why God won't force you or anyone to reconcile with him. By default, you are choosing exile if you reject God's offer of purification and atonement. As long as I am sick, I'm exiled from you, except this weird kind of way. Sin kills us and sin exiles us. The ultimate consequence of our willful contamination is so grave, which literally means deadly, that on the day of atonement, it had to be illustrated two ways, both by slaughtering the animal, painting its blood on the altar, burning it up entirely, and sending another animal off into the desert out of the community where it had been cared for. God is saying, this is the end result of sin. You guys need to be purified from it, or this will happen to you. Better, even though these are also animals that God created and loves, better for this to happen to an animal than to a human being. And yet, here's the difference between the illustration, which is all of the Old Testament sacrifices, and the real thing. These very costly annual sacrifices, not to mention all the other ones between during the rest of the year, are ultimately at best just shadows, as Hebrews 10 says, of what sin ultimately does to us and what the solution actually is. God didn't really need the sacrifices, like it says in Psalm 50. They didn't actually accomplish anything, but they gave us a picture of the real cost to our purification. Hebrews 10, 1 to 4 says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And then a little later in that same chapter in Hebrews 11 to 14, it says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, 
had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, not two, one. He took on both our death and our exile on himself. He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Hallelujah. So let's imagine this little sci-fi story here. Imagine if the truth was there was a way to completely wipe COVID off the planet. Imagine if there was only one way to do it. And that that way was there, there was one person on earth who was present at the case, the first case of COVID who didn't catch it, who stayed at the epicenter of the pandemic and never contracted COVID and never carried it and never transmitted it. Imagine if it were true that if you could get a transfusion of this person's blood, you could be equally free of COVID forever. Immune and also never able to carry it, never able to pass it on again. Imagine if somehow, because we're imagining here, this person had enough blood, blood is a purifying agent, remember, available for every person in the world who wanted it, but the only way they could give it to anybody was to give all of it and die. This is something like what the sacrifices illustrated and something like what Jesus' death actually accomplished. The blood of Christ purifies us from all sin. So let us, as Asaph in Psalm 50 said, make thankfulness our sacrifice to God and keep our promises to the Most High. Then we can call on him when we are in trouble and he will rescue us. He did rescue us. And this is another way of compliment. I don't always say that wrong. <laughs> this is another way of contemplating the atonement. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for what you have accomplished for us in purifying us from all sin forever. Please help us to live in that truth. Help us to seek to live purely, to bring your refreshment and your purification joyfully and lovingly to the world around us because we are so grateful for what you've done. Let us offer you sacrifices of thanksgiving in your name. Amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen.